Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, guys, and welcome to this Caged In Conversation where I sat down with Daniel Noah, a writer, producer, director, and co-founder of the fantastic SpectreVision, along with uh, Lisa Welland, Josh Waller, and Elijah Wood. Um, This is possibly one of my favorite conversations I've ever had on the podcast. So I know you're going to enjoy it. I I very much... um, enjoyed having this conversation it gets off to like this really esoteric start and we get into the things like the paranormal and I I feel like that really helped us to kind of like get into that heavy topic right up front and then just kind of made the rest of the conversation really easy to have I mean Daniel uh, ended up just chatting afterwards for a little bit as well and there's certain things that he told me that uh, unfortunately I, I cannot tell a living soul uh, don't try and hit me up on social media to to know what that is because I don't want the uh, Spectavision hitmen after me for divulging some uh, <laughs> some tales but they're, they're, yeah 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 it was a it was a, it was a great conversation and one thing I really wanted to address up front is the elephant in the room on this episode which is Richard Stanley and I want to make it perfectly clear my views on Richard Stanley I believe Richard Stanley to be and I think rightfully is a piece of shit Uh, I want to quickly read out what Spectavision had to say when the news of Stanley's abuses that he had caused to uh, an ex-partner came out Um, They handled it perfectly by coming out straight away and really saying, this is who we are. We believe women. Something that a lot of studios don't tend to do. So it was a a real real breath of fresh air to to, to hear this or to read this statement, which is Spectavision will no longer work with Richard Stanley. We are proud of the talented cast and crew behind Colour Out of Space, yet we are horrified by the charges against its director. We will be donating future revenue from the film to charities devoted to stopping domestic violence. 
you can't like you can't really argue like that is fucking hats off to them um if anyone from Spectavision is uh, listening hats off to you guys and uh i wanted to take a quick moment to to kind of because i have this soapbox and this platform um this week and and any week i would i would love especially this week i know i sometimes ask for you to join patreon and stuff like that i don't i don't want any of that you'll be able to look in the show notes and i've listed a handful of domestic abuse charities that you can donate to um because i believe this is like yeah with with this platform it's 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 sometimes good well it's always good to share to share things that can help people and if if in any way like i we can help people that's amazing right so yeah so be sure to check all that out and um be sure to enjoy this conversation uh i just wanted to get obviously all of that stuff out of the way but um yeah that's why it's not addressed in this conversation because it's this podcast isn't about that so enjoy my conversation with daniel noah Today, I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by a writer, director, producer, clairvoyant, Daniel Noah of Spectavision. So you may be aware of his name. Well, he, he's one of the people, when you see that, produced by the producers of Mandy. This is one of the guys they're talking about. That, uh, Daniel Noah, how are you today? Hi, good. Thank you. I've never. Wow, that was the first time I've heard clairvoyant uh, included <laughs> in my introduction. That, that's a funny sounding word. <laughs> I um, I, I recently listened to a podcast on Hollywood is dead, and uh, I, I guess yeah. that's yeah. You referred to yourself as, as is that, do you do you, do you is is that a is that a fair assessment of who you are? Would you would you align yourself as a clairvoyant, or is it kind of a muddled area for you? You know, I. I I'm so uncomfortable with the vocabulary around this stuff. I think it's, um, you know, we use the best words available to us, but I I don't know that I feel that they're sufficient. Um, You know, in in a nutshell, um, I was, um, I was a very hardcore skeptic for my entire life until 2015 when uh, I was a sort of a key party in an undeniable paranormal event uh, (laughs) that completely turned my head around. And then strangely, inexplicably, from that event forward, it has been somewhat uh, nonstop. Um, There's been so many um, subsequent, you know, anomalous experiences that I've been a part of that it's just completely changed my whole relationship to reality and even really my relationship to the work that we do which i used to think was uh just the stuff of fantasy and i've now come to wonder if on some level i was unconsciously trying to uh address real phenomena that i didn't understand intellectually was real <laughs> um and and you know and and, and the reason that i i speak about it publicly is that when it first 
happened, I was very ashamed and I felt very embarrassed and, and afraid of how my peers and colleagues and would react to me talking about this mm -hmm. stuff because until it happened to me, I was very judgmental of people who talked about these things. And when I was, um, it, when we were publicizing um, visitations or podcast, the publicist reached out and said, would you be interested in, uh, you have an invitation to be on Spooked. Have you ever had any paranormal experiences? <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit, <laughs> I don't know if I, I want to do this, but I, you know, I, I, the reason that I did it was that I was so lost with what I was going through and I had no idea where to turn for support or information. And, um, and one of the things in particular that was very confusing for me was that anytime I ever heard a good ghost story or, you know, a, a, someone sharing a paranormal experience, it was always just the story of a one-off mm -hmm. and I was desperately searching for any examples of people like me for whom it was happening all the time over and over again. And I, and I was, you know, overwhelmed by, and, and afraid. And, and because I couldn't find any resources, what went through my head was, well, maybe then I need to become a resource mm -hmm. because people don't seem to be comfortable talking about these things. So maybe one way that I can contribute to the furthering of this cause is by being the person that I can't find. <laughs> so I went on Spooked and that led to invitations from a lot of other paranormal podcasts. <laughs> and I just decided I'm going to say yes to every invitation that I get, because, um, you know, if I, if I can help others like me to realize that they're not alone, then maybe I've done some good. And it's led to actually um, me being plugged into uh, an, a vast network of other experiencers, um, many of whom are closeted, so to speak. <laughs> um, I mean, it's shocking how many high profile people in my industry are either interested in these subjects or like me having our experiencers who are afraid to, to talk about it publicly. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be right for me to name them, but like <laughs> you, it's people, you know, and love and, and, um, and uh, so, you know, the, it's, it, it's really been rewarding. And, and, and so far as I've made some incredible friends and, and, and now, you know, I, I've been tapped into incredible resources and, and the study of, of the paranormal has become a central preoccupation of my life at this point. I'm, um, I mean, I'm constantly uh, collecting out of print books, which I would argue are suppressed information. Um, when you, when you really approach this area with an open mind and a scientific mind, the evidence is absolutely overwhelming that there is legitimacy to the paranormal phenomenon. And that the reason that I think, um, the powers that be suppress this information is that it suggests that our scientific method is extremely limited, mm -hmm. which is a very unsettling concept <laughs> to a species that likes to believe they're in control. 
and, and so you know there i mean this stuff gets really wild but but you know you history is written by the winners mm-hmm. and that extends to publishing yeah and when you start to understand the burned books concept mm-hmm. I mean, if you go back even to the the birth of uh, or not the birth of but the the um uh the, the there's no better word for it the the war that happened uh from the catholic on the part of the catholic church yeah, yeah. in 1300s they literally burned anyone who didn't uh, uh subscribe to their belief system mm-hmm. they scrubbed every other belief from the books i mean burnt burning books burning people Mm-hmm. And and although ironically, Catholicism today is one of the is probably the only organized religion or, or institution that is somewhat open to paranormal uh, a phenomenon. I mean, like they believe in demon possession and exorcism, and yeah. um, so by today's standards, they're quite progressive. But <laughs> um, but um, you know, you you start to you start to when you when you seek out these out of print um, texts, you start to understand that things that we now regard as quite silly stuff of fantasy, there may be some legitimacy to some of these sciences like alchemy and, 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 yeah. but, but how can we know? Because the evidence has been erased. And, and so I'm not saying that alchemy is <laughs> legitimate, but I'm not saying that it isn't. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and so I just, I've, I, you know, I've been humbled because I've had things happen to me that, I don't understand and I can't explain. And, and the more that I uh, open myself to it and, and willfully look at it, mm-hmm. as they say, you know, if you stare into the abyss, eventually the abyss will stare back. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, so the, the, more, the more I've sort of spiritually dedicated myself to engagement with these anomalous phenomena, the more they engage back. And um, it's a fascinating, fascinating process. At times, I think I'm losing my mind. Uh, <laughs> and, but but I think that, um, you know, that in some ways is is really the role of the artist in, in civilization is, is to be willing to um, engage with experiences that, frankly, can make you crazy. And then, you know, you, you, you walk out of the dark cave and you tell the tale. <laughs> and and so so I I do look at at my advocacy for the legitimacy of paranormal research as an extension of my role as a storyteller. Um, I think they're very aligned, very similar, and it's advocating for highly highly subjective experiences that are difficult to talk about, difficult to quantify, to qualify. Um, so whether those are um, you know p- purely earthbound emotional experiences. Or um, inexplicable paranormal experiences. To me, they all sort of live in the same world. They're, you know, they're things that are hard to talk about, and that's the role—the role of the artist, mm-hmm. it, the shaman. You know, is is to talk about those things, and and so so I try to. It's fascinating for me that obviously this kind of openness to the paranormal and you kind of speaking about it came out of that promotional tour for visitations because an, an, ep- an episode that really stood out to me was the flying lotus one and he's very open about the yeah. fact that he believes his house is haunted yeah. and there's something amazing you guys managed to capture on that episode of like yeah I, and all the episodes you kind of get a feeling of the person with like and on that one it's raining and like 
Um, yeah. He does that amazing, like improvised, like just shows you guys a bit of, like piano so work and stuff like yeah. that. And it's just like, I remember like feeling like, I don't like yourself. I used to be like, I've always, I don't know. I don't feel I've always been a skeptic, but kind of been in that kind of gray area of being like, I want to believe. Do you know what I mean? Like very, yeah. very much like the ex. I, 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 yeah. And then like, even like listening to something like that, it's like, I think like, I think there is, there is, there is something there. And I've, Looking at the films you got, and I think it's uh, a great jumping off point to talk about the paranormal because it feels like, especially two of the films that that star Nick Cage have kind of ghosts like looming over them. Whether it's yeah. um, Mandy, like with like kind of, I know that Panos has said that um, that film is an expression of his grief, like the kind of outpouring of of grief of losing loved ones so you very much like i don't know i think once i heard that in an interview it really like opened my mind to watch that film again and kind of like put myself into it and that that, that thing and uh, and and color out space as well i know nick has openly said that he was kind of channeling the spirit of his father on that one yeah did it did like how does like yeah so kind of like i don't know uh backtrack with that like were you privy to any of like this like with mandy especially were you privy to kind of like the the subtext that panos had in there and like from the start or was it kind of later on that you picked up on it it was only later on um i, I think it you know when when the film was was released and everyone was looking at it um including us you know i think <laughs> I, I think a lot of times when you make a work of art you're uh, operating on instinct and it's only later that you go oh this was about my dad or what <laughs> you know it, it, sometimes you're aware of it and sometimes you're not i have no idea how aware of it panels was at the time but i i know that he started to discuss the film having well both of his films yeah. also beyond the black rainbow which I think he described as an inhale and Mandy as an exhale yeah. were him processing the loss of his parents. And, and so, uh, yeah, whether, whether or not he was aware of that at the time, I can't say uh, you'd have to ask him, but, but he, he brought it up a lot when we were looking back at the completed film for sure. But on color, Nick was talking about it on set and, you know, he is, um, a very professional, kind-hearted, um, very you know, easy to deal with artist. Contrary to what I think a lot of people would expect from him, he's actually a total pro. Um, uh, but he's on set. He said, "I'm channeling my father. Be careful." <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> and he, you know, he. Um, I hope he wouldn't mind my saying. I mean, there were times when he said like i feel like i'm losing my mind on this and, and i mean he really went he went all in yeah. and and that voice that he does that people were saying oh he's doing trump uh, uh, you know that didn't occur to any of us you know he was doing his dad he was yeah that was that was his his dad's very critical voice that i think he still hears in in his head um so he he really became his father and, and i think it was hard for him I think, yeah. he, you know, I think it was, a, it was, but again, you know, this is an extension of what I said earlier about the role of the artist is to walk into that dark cave and confront the demon and, and then live to tell the tale. And, and he did that on Colorado space. So you and Elijah got to visit the set of yeah. Colorado space. 
how 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 was that? Because obviously, like, there's um, I, I had the pleasure of speaking to Dan Martin, the uh, visual effects yeah. artist on that <laughs> film last October, and like, yeah, he had nothing to nothing but kind words to say about uh, Nick and the kind of way he was. And I guess from what you're saying, like, it must have been like that weird thing that he is he is channeling his foot, and he's kind of like, how, yeah, how was how was Nick on set, and how was the set in general? It was. Uh, it was a, a beautiful and haunting experience. We were shooting uh, at the top of a mountain in Sintra, Portugal, which is a <laughs> very, very, um, a very special place. Um, you know, I, I, I again, <laughs> it's hard for me to talk about these things without constantly invoking paranormal stuff. But, but you know, <laughs> ma- but there is a, a long legacy of mountains being uh, places on our planet that vibrate energies that are hard to understand and when you were on that set you could feel it i mean there was a very very strange feeling there um you know the um the the shot of the there's a shot right before the meteor hits of the full moon with a big ring around it yeah that's not a vfx wow that's not vfx that happened (laughs) and we pointed the camera at it and and put it in the movie and there were things like that happening constantly on that set, just strange little events and, and experiences. Um, uh, it felt very disorienting, um, but it was, it, was, it was a beautiful, very positive experience. Um, Sintra is a strange place. Uh, Alistair Crowley spent time there and um, it's, it's traditionally been a place for people who, are, um, who have somehow been ejected from society they 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 will land in Sintra for some reason like Lord Byron was there licking his wounds for a long time <laughs> uh and like I said and Crowley was there and and um obviously Pessoa the 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 poet um so that you know this it's you can feel you can feel it kind of hanging over the place and and the the house where we shot was a um, and a, had once been the uh, the home of a very wealthy man, and I, I'm forgetting his name, but he lost everything, and the house had just been, um, you know, sort of standing there in disrepair. At one point, we discovered uh, um, that if you walked, there was thick woods around the on the property surrounding the house, and at one point, we we someone discovered that if you wandered back through the woods, there was a a tiny pagan church. Wow. And, and there were, you could, you could see where um, some sort of, you know, like p- pagan symbols had been once you could see their outlines of their silhouettes on the wall, like mm-hmm. someone had pulled them down. And um, my girlfriend and I went back in there and remember just felt, <laughs> you could feel something very <laughs> weird. Like what, who built this? Why, what happened? And then we discovered that there are these um, underground tunnels wow. on the property that were so narrow that no one had the, courage to you could have probably craw- crawled through um i don't know what you call that in the army where you get you get on your you're crawling on your elbows yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, i forget what that's called but i think you could you could have you could have made it through if you did that and, and i actually went in at one point and i got about 25 feet and i was like get, i got get me out of here i can't this is terrifying um so none of us know where those tunnels go but they're they're down there if it, 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 like hearing that kind of thing like makes that film uh, yeah ever, ever so more special and stuff like that and um i guess like one of the things i wanted to ask you is obviously specter vision has this 
almost look at looking for people who have these singular visions, like the, the films you've produced, whether it's A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night or, or I guess I guess one that is kind of like the most divisive film you've ever put out is The Greasy Strangler. Yeah. <laughs> what, yeah, what, yeah. what is it you guys kind of look for when you're looking for a script or looking for someone to work with? I think first and foremost, we're, we're um, director-driven, we're filmmaker-driven. Mm-hmm. Something that we often say is people, not projects. Yes. When we first met with Panos, we had seen Beyond the Black Rainbow. And I, I, I remember saying to his manager, uh, Luke Rivet, uh, you know, and this was before we even met Panos, and I said, I think Panos might be one of the most important filmmakers alive you know, just, just based on, on that film. And of course he was like, that's music to my ears. Great. <laughs> and we, um, and when we met with him, uh, Elijah and myself, we, we, the first thing we said was, we don't even care what it is. We want to produce your next movie. We don't even need you to pitch it. It just, because it's you we're in. And, Amazing. and then some number of months later, he gave us the script for Mandy and, you know, we were already in before we even read it because, of course, anything this filmmaker produces is going to be incredible. So, um, and in fact, the script for Mandy, Elijah doesn't always agree with me on this, but as, a, as you might be able to imagine, in my opinion, the script was sort of dull. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, and the, and the reason is, as Panos likes to say, and I love this phrase, he uses the tyranny of narrative. He is sort of like a, he's, a, he's an enemy of plot. And, and when you really look at what, what happens in Mandy, it's like nothing. Yeah. It, you know, there's like 45 minutes of a couple hanging out watching TV and then she's killed and then he just kills all the people that killed her. That's the <laughs> whole pitch. So on paper, it was hard to convince people that, that this was going to be a, a, an important film. And what we finally ended up doing was instead of sending the script out, we started sending out links to Beyond the Black Rainbow. And saying, look at, don't like, stop, stop looking at the script. Look at this person's mind to understand what this film will be. And it was only then that it came together. So this is a very long winded way of saying we, we, we love singular artists. And, um, and uh, I think we look at our job as being, you know, how can we support uh, the mining of their ideas as best as possible, protect them. Um, and challenge them and push them to be the best versions of themselves that they can possibly be. So with like, um, yeah, with, with Mandy, it's a very fascinating film in the fact that like kind of the, the storm around it, like they're kind of like a lot of films take years to become cult films. And that film felt yeah. like even before it came out, it kind of had this cult like status. And like, what was it like to be in like, the somewhat middle of that like whirlwind of everything that was going on like kind of it was yeah almost like pitched as like this is the next midnight movie i mean i know when the look i think you, what you have to understand is that we i'll put it this way the night that it premiered at sundance mm-hmm. it wasn't that yet yes it was just a, you know, it was a, it was a, it was in a Sundance program, and that mm-hmm. was it. There was no trailer. There was no. I walked in convinced that twenty five percent of the people would be their favorite movie, 
25% of the people would think it was a little weird and 50% would hate it. <laughs> and, and when it was actually like a hundred percent loved it, I, I was very, very shocked. I, uh, um, I had the same, I thought, I thought the same thing would happen with greasy strangler, which I know is more, is more divisive, but you know, I, I was expecting walkouts, you know, and, and one of the things I've learned is that it's that when you're working on a film or any kind of a work of art, it's very hard to trust your own feelings about it. I've also, you know, worked on stuff where I've thought this is going to change the world. And then it doesn't. And it, so <laughs> I've just sort of learned to wait, wait and see, you know, um, but, but once it, it um, I think that what, you know, when you work on something that is, successful it's it's easy to um sleepwalk through it a little bit and mm -hmm. and not stop to recognize that you're in the middle of a very privileged moment yeah and and so i think when i look back at the mandy experience it was it was great fun but I, if i could do it over again i i wish i could be a little more present <laughs> i think and really stop and breathe and take in what was happening um, I often joke like Mandy will probably be on my gravestone. Like I, you know, it's it's the it's the, the you know everything we do now is from the producers of yeah. Mandy, and I hope we'll make it. You know, I mean, now it's saying <laughs> from the producers of Mandy in Colorado space, but um, but uh, you know, I I hope I hope we'll 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 achieve that height again. But uh, you know, you can't control these things. You do your best. You hope for the best, and then whatever happens, happens. So when 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 did you become aware of uh, Jim Hoskin as well? Like speaking of the Greasy Strangler, because Jim to me is a, a fascinating guy and the stuff he's done yeah. since. And like I kind of fell down a wormhole the other day of watching his old like shorts or like TV yeah. commercials. He did They're like so some kind, some <laughs> iconic like TV commercials here in the UK and stuff like that. So like yeah, how did he drop onto your radar? That started with uh, Tim League, actually, uh, from from Alamo Draft House, and um, he, you know, he and Elijah are very close friends, and and I forget, I think he and Aunt Timpson approached us, and we're like, you got to see this this thing, you got to read the script and look at look at this guy's work. Um, you know, we're putting in money, we need one more partner, and I remember Elijah did something that we don't we don't we typically don't do here is he he said he called and he said we're making this no one else has a vote and, <laughs> and um so we you know we came in as the third uh investor slash producer and we you know we ended up then also doing production services on the film and so we were sort of the you know the front line um along with ant um uh and um yeah i mean it was a teeny little low budget I don't know if the budget's out there in the world or not, but it was, I'll just say sub 1 million, very <laughs> sub 1 million. And, uh, you know, our experience of it was hanging out in a weird rundown house on the East side and, you know, a lot of weird sweaty nudity. And, you know, we, it's like, you never, again, you never know when you're working on something, you don't know, you don't know what, what, what the outcome's going to be. And you just try and have a good time. So the, um, but Jim's actually a really, like like a lot of filmmakers who make weird cinema, he's very normal. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, and my theory about that is that um it's because they get the weird out. So, yeah. you know, and in 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 that way, art is an exorcism. Mm -hmm. You know, you're you're taking the strangest, most unique 
and sometimes painful parts of yourself and you're extracting them and putting them on a screen or in a novel or in a painting. And, and by doing so, you, you sort of make yourself healthier. You get it yeah. out. You yeah, know, yeah. So, you know, <laughs> imagine if Jim didn't have that outlet, he could be the greasy strangler. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. 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 Um, so he's a you know a very a very sweet normal you know he you would never guess that he made such strange stuff by just sitting and talking with him. So kind of to backtrack, when did well where did Spectavision come from, and what what did you guys set out to do when it first kind of sure uh, yeah the germ came to you? Well, we met um, Elijah and Josh Waller and I. Well, Josh Waller and I are old old friends, and and we met on a project that never got made. I had been working as a screenwriter. Uh, This is a a phenomenon that I never knew existed until it happened to me, which was was a a very well-paid, unproduced Hollywood screenwriter. (laughs) Uh, I'd been doing that for about 10 years. I'd only had one movie get made. And, um, And so I had written a film that Elijah was attached to star in. Taika Waititi was attached to direct. And this was back in 2010. And, um, and that movie didn't get made. And, and we were so frustrated with that experience that Taika said, I'm going to go home and make a little low budget movie with my friends. It's, it's going to be a mock doc about vampires. Mm-hmm. And he went home and made what we do in the shadows. And, and then, and Elijah came to us and said, um, let's start our own company and then we can, we can do two things. One, we can be a home for artists that want to make uh, strange, wonderful, weird, unique genre movies, because at that time the genre landscape was pretty dominated by exploitation. Um, you, you know, the Eli Roth films were very popular and, um, and saw, and, and, and I don't, I no disrespect of those movies. I think they're, they're great, but but there there was sort of an emphasis on sadism in in genre, and whereas Elijah and I were looking at movies like Let the Right One In and The Orphanage, and uh, and then you know looking back in time, Don't Look Now and Rosemary's Baby and the films of Val Luton from the 1940s and the Universal Monster movies, and and going like, where are these films in English? In, in 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 America, who's making these movies? And the answer was no one. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to create a home for filmmakers that wanted to um, sort of return to the elevation of genre. Uh, and but simultaneously, we had had collectively so many disappointing experiences with producers who were were ultimately somewhat transactional. Mm-hmm. Can't, you know, the, your film is a widget for them to sell and nothing more. And, um, and you know, as peop, as two guys who are very passionate about the art form, you know, we, we had had some wonderful experiences with producers whom we felt kinship with, but they were hard to find. So the other experiment was, well, what, I guess sort of, like I said earlier about when I couldn't find anyone to advocate for paranormal experiencers, I, I think, you know, Elijah and, and, and Josh and I were like, well, what, well, let's just become the producers that we have sure. trouble finding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and so, you know, mo- most companies 
the way they start are with economic considerations. And then everything is an outgrowth. So it starts with you get an equity partner, you open an office, you um, and now right out of the gate, every decision that you make is based on meeting your obligations to your investor. And as such, you can't take chances. You have to be as conservative as possible. We decided let's flip it. Let's have our first step be engagement with material. So we did not go out and find an equity partner. We did not rent an office. We used to joke that we were the Lincoln lawyer production companies because we were literally driving around taking meetings in coffee shops that which, you know, I think in some ways we were afforded that luxury by having Elijah as a partner. It legitimized us mm-hmm. because he was so established. Um, but the other um, the other thing that we had going for us was um, sincerity. You know, we were very sincere. And so we would sit down. We just called people we knew. Like Lee 1L was someone that we just knew and who wrote cooties for us. And um, and we would sit down and say, do you have a passion project in the genre space that that no one will help you with because it's too hard or it's too weird? And that's a magic question with an <laughs> artist. They, so every time they would kind of be like, is this a trick question? <laughs> of course they do. And then they would pitch us these gorgeous projects. And those were exactly the types of films that we wanted to build our brand around. A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night is a great example. Yeah. But, you know, we it was very synchronistic. Two different people approached us separately. One, Mojan Marneau was a friend of mine. She was like, I'm attached to this Iranian vampire film that sounds like exactly what you guys are saying you want to do. And then uh, uh, Sherry Devani, who, who was the AD on that film, approached Elijah, who was a friend of his, and said the same thing. And we were like, it was a strange, like, we both got hit up about this movie. <laughs> And when we sat down with, with Anna Lily, it was just immediately evident that she, like Panos, was just a visionary filmmaker. And, mm-hmm. and um, so we got on board that, you know, right away. And then Cooties was a, an idea that Josh had had that uh, Lee was so excited about because he had been desperate to, to move into comedy and no one would let him do that. <laughs> they just wanted more saws and insidiouses yeah, yeah. from and then, so we made those two movies and um, and they both got into Sundance the same year. And so we had sort of this, you know, spectacular coming out, so to speak. And um, and then we were off and running. What would you say is the like Spectavision ethos? If you have one, do you guys kind of have this like thing of like, this is what the company is like, do you know what I mean? Or is it yeah. kind of? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I think it's, it's, I can answer that in two ways. One is the content and one is the context, I guess. So, so, you know, content wise, we're, we're interested in singular visions. And, and I think, you know, like I said earlier, in some ways, I think you only understand your work in retrospect. Yes. But when I look back at our catalog, what I see is not only unique voices, but a sort of a strange story being told about windows in other worlds and 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 in fact when we named the company we it took us six months to land on the <laughs> we were very picky about it and, and and what we what we said was and i think this gets well this is still content i suppose what we said was you know we want in the name we want to represent the fusion of two things something um uh, something um, 
ineffable, ethereal, untouchable, undefinable, and then something mechanical, like a window into another universe. Yeah. And so that's literally the, the when you break down specter vision is literally yeah. looking into another world. And and so I think that's what all of our films have in common is that whether it's Greasy Strangler, which is not a paranormal story, but it's certainly an alternate universe. <laughs> Um, or something like Color Out of Space, where there's an actual intrusion of 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 an alien that's so alien mm-hmm. that we can't even perceive it. Yeah, you know, I mean, the the finale of that film is 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 about something and something that's happening that is, exists outside the spectrum of the five senses. So, what actually happens at the end of Color Out of Space? Human <laughs> beings can't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you saw the finale of that film from the perspective of the alien that came in on the meteorite, it would be a completely different story. I can't tell you what that is. I don't know. I'm only a human, right? Um, and then in terms of the the ethos of the, or I guess, you know, the context is, um, uh, I, I, you know, it sounds, um, I don't know, maybe pretentious, but I think we just try to be good people <laughs> as much as we can. And, and, um, you know, sometimes we stumble, but we try to um, honor our commitments and and um, and and be genuinely loving and supportive to the people that we work with and who work for us. And um, and uh, because you know this, look in the ten years since we started this business, there's been a real reckoning in Hollywood of, of people being held accountable for bad behavior, and it's great. Um, uh, you know, I, 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 I'd like to think it was something that was on our minds before people were being held accountable for it. And, and, you know, we've, we've always really gone, we've always worked very hard to, to be good as much as we can. And, and, um, and our company's grown. I mean, you know, it started out with the three of us, Josh has subsequently left to, to focus on his directing career, which, you know, power to him. He directed three movies before uh, we started Spectre Vision. um, And then, you know, Spectre Vision sort of took over his life. And so he's sort of, I think, re- reclaiming uh, his original intention. Um, but, um, you know, we've we've grown significantly and, and um, uh, you know, we are, are we try and treat our company like a family and, and, you know, our employees like a family. And I think, you know, they 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 seem to stick around. So I think they I think they feel that I hope they feel that way, too. Uh, I want them to. Well, that definitely comes across in the films that you make, because it kind of feels like that thing of. Like you said, it comes across that Spectre Vision is about like the the people, the directors before, and it's what mm-hmm. they want to say and what they want to show people, as opposed to being like, here's just another. Do you know what I mean like here's another uh, X film or do you sure. know what I mean like yeah, yeah. I, I I don't want to start bad bad Melvin like companies, but like it's kind of. What I like about Spectre, every time I kind of see that logo pop up on a film, it's like, well, I don't know what I'm going to get because, like, yeah. not, not one, two movies are the same. But, like, sure. they, I think the the one similarity that they do all share is that they are unique unto themselves. And, um, you, yeah, you mentioned about Josh uh, going off to direct. Obviously, you've directed a film. And yeah. In email, we, we kind of uh, uh, chatted about the fact that it's, it's impossible to find in the UK. Uh, is there any like? Is there any uh, like yearning inside of you to to direct again, or are you kind of like no happy to be on the other side of it, the producing? No, side I'm very happy where I am. I, I you know, Max Rose was um, 
it was a complicated experience for me. Uh, you know, it was it was based on the story of my grandfather, who was a beloved figure in my life and my childhood. And when he, um, when he, when my grandmother passed away, I was very up close and personal with his grieving process. And um, and and what I watched him go through for the little window of time that he was still alive after he lost her was a phenomenon that I felt like I again, I like, I'm going to keep repeating these same ideas, but I felt like I didn't, I, I didn't know where to turn to, to look for, for any context about, you know, what it's like to lose your soulmate and, mm -hmm. and, and have people all over you saying in some ways, denying your pain, mm -hmm. you'll find new reasons to live. And, and and when you've lost the person who was your reason to live, yeah. that's a funny thing to hear, you know? And, and so while my grandfather um, did not commit suicide, I think, I think one does in a way in that position by mm -hmm. sort of losing the will to live. And, and what confused me as someone who cared deeply for him was while he was telling me in private, I don't want to live on without her. I'm in my 80s. Mm -hmm. This idea that I'm going to have a new chapter of my life is ridiculous, and I don't want to. And then everyone around him sort of sticking to a script of, of no, no, everything's going to be great. <laughs> you get, you know, and 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 I was like, I know I'm not supposed to say this, but I'm with him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also, who are we to tell him how to feel? He's the one who's experiencing this. He's our elder, and so. I decided to write a script about it. And, and um, so because it was such a personal uh, movie to me, I, I felt like no one else could make that movie but me. And then when I was, we were lucky enough to, to get Jerry Lewis to play the part, that ended up being a, a, an incredibly seismically important relationship in my life. I mean, we were very close for, for the last 10 years of his life. And he was an incredible mentor to me and became kind of a father figure in a lot of ways. Um, and I, and it's funny, there was a point in that where I, where I realized, ah, I'm doing it to myself again. <laughs> he said, I, I was, uh, I, I was knocked out by losing my grandfather. So I've found a replacement for him who will also die soon. And then, you know, and that's exactly what happened. But anyway, so, you know, Max Rose was, it was a complicated experience. Um, the, the, the reception of the film was very mixed, um, you know, and, and I, I myself have a complicated relationship to it. Um, but what I realized mostly from making that film, uh, I think that, you know, we willed it into existence despite great opposition and um, what I realized coming off of it is that I don't enjoy directing. Mm -hmm. I, I, uh, I thought that was what I wanted, but when I got it, I realized that it didn't feel right to me. It didn't feel comfortable. And I'm much more at ease supporting filmmakers. Yes. I think the, that had I not gone through the process of writing and directing the film, I don't know that I would be as good at my job as I am now because I've been there. I know what you go through. I know what the experience is in every way, technically, emotionally, spiritually. Um, but I have, I will never direct another movie. I, I don't have any desire to, no one's asking. Um, and I'm <laughs> very, very happy. Um, I'm very, you know, I'm very, very content where I'm at making films with Spectre Vision. 
do you feel that like producing movies you can kind of like you can enjoy them to some extent as well or is it kind of like oh yeah you're 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 like a cog in there as well and you kind of like i don't know you have a you have a stake at play whilst watching them or you like no uh, i like this this vision that's being shown to me you know look to to me i i studied screenwriting at nyu and and for me um story is the you know the heart the brain the backbone of all aspects of filmmaking yeah. and so uh you you can't perform any duty on a film without an understanding of story hopefully a mastery of story it doesn't matter what your job is if you are a set deck you have to understand the story that you're telling yeah. and so so to me whether i'm writing producing or directing it's it's about uh, constantly trying to get better at mastery of story and and um so when you know i you know i directed one movie i was a, a, a professional screenwriter for about a decade and when people ask me do you miss writing first of all i still write uh, and i've written you know i've done i've done a, a lot of writing that I'm not credited on, um, uh, and I'm and I have scripts that I've written that are that are going into production soon that I'll be able to talk about when they're announced. <laughs> but um, but uh, but my answer is, you know, I'm still writing. Yeah. It's, it's just I'm not sitting down and typing, but I'm work. I work so closely with every writer and every filmmaker, and and, and I think that you know when when at first I was a little unsure of how. Um, writers would feel about another writer as their boss, frankly, you, you know, yeah. coming in and having opinions. And I, I've thought, oh, geez, are, are people going to feel um, proprietary? Um, but what I've discovered is that as I felt when I was in that position, when I was a writer, when you have a producer who actually understands writing, it's just mm -hmm. incredible. Yeah. Um, wave of relief and excitement and and that was how I felt when I was the writer who would occasionally get a producer who actually understood how the process worked and I found yeah. I mean I've had one after another wonderfully satisfying delicious collaborations with with writers and and so and in some ways I feel like as a producer because I, I'm not actually writing anything mm -hmm. I'm able to work on exponentially more stories than I could if I were writing them myself yeah. and dip in and out and i cycle through them um uh but but it's still storytelling so what does like a producer tend to normally do and how how do you, do you think you guys do something different to other like uh producers and kind of like yeah do you treat your um i don't know your directors differently to how other and not to bad mouth like other studios or anything no, like no. that but like, <laughs> um i think you know, one of the most common questions that people ask is, what does a producer do? Yeah, and, yeah. and there's there's a lot of answers to that question. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, there's you, you, there's raising money, there's managing a set, there's managing a budget, and then there's managing creative. So that's the one that I do. I manage creative, and that's what Elijah does as well. Um, Lisa Whalen, who's our third partner, is also creative, but she is also fills in Elijah's in my blanks in terms of running a business and <laughs> the operational aspects that we're not so good at. Um, uh, uh, so I, I, I think, yes, <laughs> I think we're, 
we're very, very hands-on. I think we're, in some ways, when you make a film with SpectreVision, you are partnering with SpectreVision. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're, we, we have a strong voice. We're very opinionated. We, uh, we're not shy about our opinions. But what we're very, very careful to do is to always make sure that every opinion that we have and every move that we make is in service of the director's vision. It's not mm-hmm. our vision. Yes. It's the director's vision. And that's something that I've always enjoyed. And it's one of the reasons why I'm so happy to not be a director anymore, but to be working with directors is that I love getting inside someone else's head, mm-hmm. getting inside their intention and helping them. Um, I find that incredibly delicious and rewarding much more so than shepherding my own vision. Yeah. yeah. So, so um, being a wingman for someone mm-hmm. else is uh, what I love to do. It's what Elijah and Lisa love to do. And um, so I, yeah, I think I, I do. I, I often hear that we're far more involved than most <laughs> producers are. Um, uh, but I, I think you know, I think, you know, if a filmmaker doesn't want that, then they shouldn't work with us. And 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 many don't, you know, <laughs> for that reason. I mean, we've had filmmakers that we've wanted to work with who have declined. And I, and I think in some ways it's because they were, they didn't need the kind of active creative partnership that we bring and they were right to decline. And, and so, you know, the thing, things have a tendency to work out. So do you guys have like this kind of whiteboard that has a list of directors that you're like, we'd like to go sure. after or is it like the people who you haven't heard of that you're most excited about like it's a both. kind of yeah it's both i mean I, you know i think it would be uncouth of me to name names but we yeah, you yeah, know yeah. we definitely we have a hit list of uh, you know <laughs> i don't know if any of them are listening you know who you are i mean there's a couple <laughs> of people that we've been we've been trying to you know um coax back to the scene like we did uh, like we've done in the past with some other filmmakers and, and um, uh, that's, you know, a, a long game takes years. Um, yeah. There's one person in particular who I hope to be able to say this person's name sooner or later, um, who is one of the finest filmmakers alive um, that we're, we're trying to convince to make a movie. Um, um, and we're very lucky that we're, we get access to, to these people. We, we have their ear and we take advantage of it. So, uh, you know, I think we, um, you know, we're nerd fans at heart and, and we try and approach our work through that lens of like, what would be, what, what's the announcement in variety that would make us lose our minds? Like, <laughs> let's create that announcement, Perfect. you know, and, 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 um, but, but at the same time, you know, we're always, we love being blown away by someone new. I just saw this film called Come True by Anthony Scott Burns that, you know, it blew me away and, and he and he and I've been talking and, and, you know, we're looking for a project to, to do together. Um, uh, you know, we're, I think, you know, we're, because we've taken chances on new voices, I think oftentimes we don't have to necessarily work for it. People just call us and go, have you seen this kid's film? (laughs) And we go, no, you know, you're going to love it. And then we watch it and we do. So, you know, whether it's, coaxing someone out of retirement or uh, enabling someone that no one's heard of, mm-hmm. you, you know, that we're, we're, if we believe in the voice, we're all in. In that thing of coaxing people, are you going to somehow coax Nick Cage back to Spectivision to kind of 
uh, finish off this kind of Spectrevision trilogy that he's I kind of. Asking that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I, you know, look, we've Nick's. He's a friend of the family. Um, uh, we uh, have mutually expressed a desire to continue working together. It's just you know when the right project comes along. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. Um, we almost did something with him a couple years ago. Um, right before the pandemic, but it ended the schedule ended up not working out. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I'd love to make more than one more movie with Nick. I, yeah, I, yeah. Look, I, I'm not even going to play it cool. I, I am the perhaps other than you, the biggest Nicholas Cage fan <laughs> in the world. I, I mean, I couldn't was beside myself that we were making a movie with him on Mandy. I couldn't believe it. I think he is one of the finest, most vital artists of any medium. <laughs> Ever. I mean, I, and, and, and it has been until recently, I think, widely misunderstood. I'd like to think we've been a little bit of a part of people understanding him correctly. He is, insofar as an actor's body is, is, is their instrument, he's taken that to the nth degree. And he, he's, he is a, an artist who lives in extremes. Yeah. He is as good or as bad as his director. And, and I think that's what people don't understand. Oh, that, that, that. And that, that's a drum I've been beating for a long time. It's like covering all of the Nick Cage films. Like there's so many I watch and I go like, this is a case of a director not knowing what to do right. with Nick Cage. That's exactly right. And it's, exactly right. it's that thing of like when a, like from speaking to directors he's worked with, it's like, he is the utmost professional guy. He will turn up day yes. one. He will know the script back to yes. front. He will kind of like, yes. Yeah, Brian Taylor, who's worked with him a couple of times, mm -hmm. was like, yeah. he kind of like, he, he will come in, he'll be like, yeah, I, I know the script to mum and dad, back to front, like, I will do yes. whatever needs to be done. And yeah, I think Julian Hillard uh, mentioned on Twitter recently that like, Nick Cage taught him how to like improvise. Like, do you know what I mean? He's kind of like, he's got this. Oh, Julian. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah from from, from color. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like, well, he comes in not only knowing the script backwards and forwards, but, but knowing the, the, like having done script analysis six mm -hmm. ways from Sunday, you know, he, he comes in with such a profound take on the material. And, you know, and, and he, um, I think that's why those who have had successful relationships with him are always emphasizing that he's a pro because you can, you can look at his wilder performances and, and you would make the assumption that he would be an unwieldy presence on set. Hmm. He is, if you let him, but he, you tell him no. And he says, okay, you know, he had a thing on color where, you know, every, some people don't pick up on this, but every member of the family has a different sensory relationship to the experience. So his is smell. Mm -hmm. He's constantly talking about bad smells. He wanted to have a closed pin on his nose the entire movie. And uh, <laughs> he'd be talking like this. And we were like, yeah, no. And he was like, okay, <laughs> he's dropped it. But, but, you know, I think when you, this is a, a testament to him as a professional, he's completely deferential to the filmmakers. And, and, and um, it, it, you know, he knows his job is to take direction. So, he is um he is uh he's a little bit like um a garden hose that's uh spraying water wildly and if you know how to grab it yeah and control it you can water your garden brilliantly but if if you don't if you're scared to touch it because you think it's going to whack you in the face it's going to fly all over the place right and so you know i think when when 
to me, when I see a quote unquote bad Nick Cage performance, what I see is it's not a bad performance. It's that they didn't know how to craft it. <laughs> they didn't. And, and Panos would talk about Nick through the lens of, um, he would say that his job was to be Nick's equalizer, like for like a, as a piece of like a stereo component. And they crafted an arc in which, you know, he started as like a very subdued Nick Cage. And then little by little, he became more unhinged. And that was grafted. That performance was grafted together collaboratively. And, and Panos would talk about having his fingers on the levels of like, you yeah. know, knowing exactly when to go, okay, you know, the, you know, the bass needs to kick in here. The, and, and, you know, the result is one of Nick's best performances. And, and, and I think we did the same thing on color, you know, where it was, you know, this, this journey from this sort of button down family man to this complete maniac, you know, was, it was very carefully crafted. And, and um, so, yeah, I, to me, he's one, quite simply one of the, the, the best actors yeah. we've, we've ever had. And, and um, I, I, I think, you know, it's really exciting to see this renaissance, yeah. you know, that he's having now and people suddenly, instead of, you know, joking about cage rage, they're now worshiping at the altar of one of our finest artists and and it's amazing to watch i love it well what's interesting about the two films that like who's yeah he's worked on with you guys is that they both have what other people would put in like a sizzle reel of like nick cage loses his shit <laughs> right right <laughs> is that like it, it, even that kind of freak out he does in the middle of mandy and the, that that moment in color when he does the like he freaks out in the car i yeah. i call them yeah. like they're earned freak outs like, yes Within the story, they they totally make sense. It's like him in that bathroom, yeah, totally makes sense to the plot yeah. of that movie. It's like yeah. he has just witnessed the death of the woman he loves more than yeah. anything, his savior. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, of course, like that is a humanistic reaction to that, and it's absolutely, like, and absolutely, it's, it's testament to Panos for kind of like bottling that energy in that Agreed. moment. And like it's that kind of like thing. Of I like, agree. I, I, I def definitely think, yeah, I definitely think that like Cage. When I came to this podcast, it was around the time that it was kind of like height memeable Cage. Do you know yeah, I mean? like yeah. That that I think there, yeah, there is a YouTube video called Nick Cage loses his shit, and even in that, and it's like yeah. there's a link back to like one of my personal favorite Nick Cage films is Vampire's Kiss. Oh my like, god. Yeah. He kind of recycles like yeah. that voice from yeah. that in color, yeah. and I know that he said in interviews that that was inspired by his dad as well. Because he was like, "What yeah. are the?" Because his yeah, his dad was like a a professor or like a kind of yeah, yeah. So he's like academic, yeah, very yeah, critical, yeah, these, yeah. Yeah, these academics kind of have this transatlantic accent that yeah, makes them sound a bit more like. <laughs> like they know what they're going they're, they're borrowing a bit of britishness to it and stuff like that that makes them seem a bit more yeah yeah well I, you know the, the the bathroom scene in mandy is one of my favorites because it's so it's so emotionally raw that you know the few times that i saw that film in the theater i remember half the audience is laughing and half is crying mm -hmm. and and that's amazing to me mm -hmm. and i always felt that the half who are laughing are laughing because they're scared to cry it's you know that is not funny that scene yeah. <laughs> it's it's funny if you're avoiding what it's about mm -hmm. but you know i watched we the the i remember very clearly the the la premiere of that film 
was at the the uh, Egyptian theater, and I had, was literally that morning had returned from Big Sur where my girlfriend and I had gotten engaged. We were so it was like vibrating with a feeling, and then when that scene hit. And it's the scene of a man who's lost the love of his life. I was just, I mean, I worked on the movie, you know, and yet I was just wrecked mm-hmm. and, and overcome with, with feeling. And then, but, and then I'm listening to people laugh and I'm going, wow, this is what movies can do. It's a real, it's, it's, an, it's an amazing, it's an amazing thing. Yeah. It's that thing, like, like I mentioned to you earlier, like it wasn't on like the second watch of Mandy that like, I kind of was like, I need to give myself over to this film a bit more. And um, yeah. it's that thing. And I, I've never gone through like a loved one, the grief of a loved one, but like, I kind of like brought a, that element of just like losing, like that kind of love of your life, whether it's like a separation. And it's like, even just yeah. bringing that to that film, just really like, yeah. so you see it in a whole different prism of it. And it's just like, yeah. And I guess it's that thing, because the criticism I see of it a lot of the time is I think people expect it to be this kind of, I don't know, like 80 minute, like B movie. And it's, it's mm. not that. And no, no. And I, I think that, yeah, the, the vision that Panos gives us with this kind of quite slow and like, yeah, yeah. No, it's the thing on repeat watch, you kind of get that feeling that like, all of the latter half, all of the vengeance and destruction that Red goes on is earned by this kind of first 45 minutes of him and Mandy, like just yeah. expressing their love. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's, yeah. it's a beautiful picture. Um, so, as, uh, yeah, as we start to wi- uh, wind things down, uh, I guess we need to talk about some of the, the, the future projects. And, and first of all, a project that's kind of been floating around in the ether for a while is uh the man with uh kaleidoscope eyes yeah is there any like news we're trying (laughs) when that will see the light of day (laughs) (laughs) we're trying yeah man with kaleidoscope eyes is um is uh a film that joe dante will direct that is um a comedy uh Account, a comedic account of the events of 1967, during which Roger Corman was preparing to direct the movie *The Trip*, which was about Peter Fonda taking uh, dropping acid. And what happened in life was that uh, Peter and a young unknown actor named Jack Nicholson <laughs> approached this very buttoned-down Roger Corman. Said, uh, "Hey, man, you can't make a movie about acid if you haven't dropped acid." And Corman, who was very logical, said, oh, oh, that's a good point. So he went up to Big Sur with this little caravan of bohemians and he dropped acid and it changed his life. It was, it was after that that he started his own company. He uh, married his wife, Julie, whom he had just met and had been sort of a serial bachelor until that time. Um, he, he had an incredibly positive therapeutic experience um, so it's a script that's been around, gosh, 20 years or something. Colin Firth was going to do it at one time. And I can't, there's like this long history of actors that were attached to it. Um, so we're, we've been trying to put this movie together for years and, and, um, it's, it's frustrating. I, I you know, this is my 
great frustration with the world of film finance is that it's built entirely around the value of the actors who are attached. Um, and, um, you know, it, it's, it's just, sometimes you just want someone who can write a check for $3 million to just go, you know what? I get this. It's got an audience. Yeah. Just go guys, just go. <laughs> um, and because it's the catch 22 of it is that you can't, it's very hard to get the actors who can support a budget until you have money to offer them. And, you know, and, and so we've, we've been trying and we have actually a, a, a I, I can't say who they are, but we've, <laughs> we've actually cast most of the parts. We just haven't cast Corman. And, and so we're, we're working on it. Um, it's never far from our thoughts <laughs> We're we're, you know, we had this incredible stage reading of the, of the screenplay in LA um, and Bill Hader read Corman and it was amazing. Um, he, you know, unfortunately he, his schedule with Barry and, and his, he, he can only make like one feature film a year and, and yeah. it's, you know, it's not possible for him to do a low budget movie um, in that little window. Um, uh, but yeah, we're trying, we're trying. Perfect. Well, let's talk about a project that is imminent for release and obviously getting a, getting its premiere at Tribeca, which is, no man of god and i guess like uh the the whole ted bundy thing has kind of like been done to death and i, I know i'm excited yeah. at the fact that you guys with your kind of singular vision of things must have seen something in this script like what can yeah. you tell us about no man sure. of god well no man of god is when we first heard the pitch like anyone any reasonable person we were like no nah, there's way too much ted bundy stuff we, we don't want to do this we don't want to contribute to the deification of this man and and then we read it and what we saw in it was an opportunity to make a film that's not about ted bundy it is about the audience for popular cultures desire to deify serial killers. Mm -hmm. And so the, the intention of the film is to turn the lens, so to speak, back onto the viewer and say, why do you keep showing up for the story? Mm -hmm. Look at who this is and look at what he's done. You know, it's one thing to have a Hannibal Lecter character who, you know, is is sort of exists in a comic book world. But even that, mm -hmm. you think about who you're rooting for and what he's done. And Amber Seeley, who, who we hired to direct the film, who is just a huge hearted, brilliant, beautiful humanist, um, did something with the movie that is really incredible. Um, uh, it, it's there's only one female character in the film, Bundy's lawyer. But she made the film with a feeling of it being viewed through the eyes of the victims. Mm -hmm. Though they're not represented in the film, that was very deliberate, that we didn't name them, we didn't put any images of them. Amber, every time she made a choice with the camera, with the music, with the editing, it was always about the ghosts of the women whose lives that he took. So it's really the story of, of accountability and not only accountability for Bundy, you know, who has been treated as a rock star, you yeah. know, and even the Zac Efron movie, you know, yeah, if you cast Zac Efron, 
of course, he's going to be a sex symbol, right? Yeah. And it's no disrespect. Luke Kirby's a very handsome guy, but but just, you know, Luke came in and he said, I want to play this guy like a dirty ashtray. <laughs> he lost a ton of weight. He get, you know, and and uh, so we wanted to kind of pull the curtain back on the wizard a little bit and 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 say, um, uh, this isn't a movie about a serial killer. It's a movie about movies about serial killers. And, 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 um, and, and it hopefully asks the question, um, why, why do you like this? And what harm are you doing by continuing to treat these people as, as rock stars and celebrities? Um, I hope that's what we accomplished with it. <laughs> I, 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 I think we did. Um, we'll, we'll see how people feel about it. Well, I'm sure I speak for a lot of people when I say I can't, I can't, I can't wait to see it. Um, Thank you. I'm sure, I'm sure plenty of other people like just saying like, I think they're what, there's two like stills from it. And I'm just like, yes, please. Like, give me, give me <laughs> um, um, so as I always ask people, uh, on this podcast, especially when it's, uh, revolved around Nick Cage is what is your personal favorite Nick Cage movie? Oh man. Um, wow. And I know you've got a couple of horses in the race. They don't count. Okay. Can't, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's hard not to say leaving Las Vegas. Uh, it's he's so heartbreaking in that film. And it's, it's like everything that he's great at, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's heightened, but it, it, it's heightened in, in, and it exists in a real world. And, and, um, you know, he, he just absolutely breaks my heart in that movie. He's so tender and, and so, so vulnerable and so brave. Um, yeah, I'd have to go with leaving Las Vegas. Perfect. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for thank coming you. and joining me for this podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Same. I really enjoyed the conversation. I'm so glad that you invited me. And there we have it, guys. That was my conversation with Daniel Noah, and I'm sure you will agree that it is it's one of the best ones, right? Like, no offense to any of my previous guests or interviewees. I just there's something about that one that just really, really stood out to me. And I, I had a lot of fun chatting to Daniel, and I really, really do hope that you enjoyed listening to it. And I'd love to know what you guys thought. Like, please, please, like you don't have to do it even like publicly on um, social media. Drop me a message. Like, I'm on all of them. I'm always in my DMs. Do you know what I mean? You can always find me in the DMs. Um, yeah. And, um, or, or drop me an email, which is cagedinpod at gmail.com. Uh, one thing I really want to do for this episode as well is say a massive thank you to two people. Uh, one of them is Daryl Edge of the Cage Rage podcast. He helped me set up this interview in a weird way by I noticed that Daniel Noah was following him on Twitter and said, hey, man, could you slip into Daniel Noah's DMs and get him to uh, get him to follow me or like, yeah, give him give him my email or get his email for me so I can rate, get, get, get an interview. Because When I started this podcast or like when I came back this podcast should i say i wrote a list of people i'd love to speak to and the top of that list were three names and they were elijah wood daniel noah and panos cosmothos so that's one of the three down let's let's 
let's pester the other two. Don't, not not too much, but let's let's try and pester the other two to see if they can come on the podcast at some point. And the other person I would really like to thank is Hannah Wood from Spectrevision, who really, um, yeah, through like email and that really helped to kind of make this a really smooth episode like like do you know what I mean? it made it really smooth for like me and daniel to get connected and sorting out the dates and stuff like that so yeah hannah if you're listening thank you very much so as always guys i've been petrus pat syllabus i've been caged in i'll catch you next time Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Copeland Connections, A Droop Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.